Good morning, everyone. My name is David, and I serve at Trinity as one of the pastors. And uh, thanks for being with us this morning as we continue our series through the book of Esther. It's May. Can you believe it? It's May. And uh, all of this stuff with COVID-19 started back in March. It's hard to believe we're, we're here in May. And I don't know how you felt during this time, but this just felt a little bit like the Bill Murray movie Groundhog Day for our family. Or every day you get up and it kind of feels like it's the same. And I'm sure we're all looking forward to moving beyond this time. And we've been looking for ways as a family to sort of just vary our days and do new things. And as the weather gets better, of course, we can do more outside. But one of the things we did is we decided to cave and buy a new game for our girls' Nintendo Switch. And they picked this game out called Lego DC Supervillains. It's a pretty fun game. It's all about uh, you're playing as the villains in the DC uh, comic world. And maybe you have a favorite villain. If you have a favorite villain in a superhero movie, feel free to write it into the comments right now if you're watching on Facebook. And, and uh, don't get into a full debate because I want you to stay with me here. But go ahead and post what you, who your favorite villain is. I think we all probably have one. The truth is, is that great superheroes need great villains. It's, it's the villains often that make the story great or make the movie interesting. Batman needs Joker. Superman <coughs> needs Lex Luthor. The Avengers need Thanos. And the NFL needed the Patriots. So I get it. We, we need villains. In week two of our series in Esther, as we're getting into this story, and this morning we're in chapters three and four, uh, the story really is about four characters. We met three of them last week. The king, King Xerxes or Ahasuerus, uh, Queen Esther, the orphan Jewish girl who was uh, made queen through this uh, quote-unquote beauty pageant that we talked about last week, and then Mordecai, Esther's cousin who had adopted her and really serves the role of like a mentor and, and, and a friend to her in the season. But in these chapters, we're introduced to Haman, and Haman is the villain of the story, and he's quite a villain. This morning, we're going to look at Haman in chapters 3 and 4, and uh, one of the things that I notice about Haman, one of the things I think that you can't help but notice about Haman is his pride. And this morning, we're going to talk about pride, and we're going to look at this in Haman's life. We're going to learn three things about pride. We're going to learn about the nature of pride, we're going to learn about the result of pride, and then lastly, we'll learn about the death of pride. So let's talk first about the nature of pride. I want to read to you from Esther chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, reading from the ESV. And it says, after these things, so, so Esther is the queen, and after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite. Now, Agagite means uh, most likely that he was a descendant of Agag, the Amalekite king, who was an enemy of Israel for a long, long time ago. So this is sort of this, um, this, uh, this enemy that Israel has had for many years, and Haman is embodying that. He's the son of Hamadatha, and the king advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning them. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew." And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. 
So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Two things that we learn about the nature of pride right here in this passage. Number one, pride is never satisfied. And number two, pride is never secure. It's never satisfied and it's never secured. It says right here that all of the king's servants are bowing down to Haman. Haman was elevated to basically second in command in the kingdom by the king. And so he's, the king has commanded that these servants, these are the king's servants, these are not Haman's servants, but because there's been a command from the king, they're all bowing down. Every single one of them is bowing down to Haman except for one, Mordecai. Haman is so prideful that he will not be satisfied with the honor of everyone else bowing to him just because of one person. And we learn something about pride here, that pride is so powerful that as long as you are getting just one thing you think you should have, you'll be miserable. You could have everything else, but if there's one thing that, uh, that avoids you, that evades you, you won't have joy. C.S. Lewis, who I'm going to quote a couple times in this message because he's so good on the topic of pride, he says this, he says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say, we say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If someone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Pride is never satisfied. Pride always needs more. And if that's true, then what it means is that for the proud person, there's no such thing as uh, real satisfaction. There's no lasting joy. There's no real rest for them to enter into because pride is never satisfied. Secondly, pride is never secure. Pride is ultimately what? It's putting myself at the center of the world. My needs, my desire, my importance, my accomplishments, my achievements at the center of the world. I remember one time I was talking to a friend who was trying to explain to me someone that they know that I don't know. And they liked that person, but, 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 but the person was a little bit prideful, known for being prideful. And they said it this way to me, and I'll use my name just so I don't betray who they were talking about. They said this, they said, yeah, David is, he's, he's great at this, he's good at this, and, and he does this well. But something you need to know is that David loves David. <laughs> David loves David. And Haman loves Haman. Pride is all about getting what I want, being who I want to be, and being celebrated for that building my entire life around those things. And if that's true, then here's what's also true. The foundation of my life as a prideful person is one of two things. It's, it's really both. It's my achievements and my accomplishments. Look at who I am. Look at what I've done. Look at the badge on my chest. Look at the trophy in my trophy case. Look at my resume. Look at my career. It's my achievements. It's my accomplishments. Look at me. And the foundation of my life is built on those things, which, by the way, is exhausting exhausting because you never know if you've done enough to impress people and it's enslaving because it makes you a slave to the things that will bring you accomplishment and achievements but the other thing that pride people uh, proud people build their lives on is not just their achievements and their accomplishments but the approval the acceptance um, and the attention of other people and that's also really difficult because have you noticed in life you can't control everyone else and you can't compete with everyone else You'll never be secure. 
And in this passage, once Haman realizes that Mordecai is not bowing to him and that he's a Jew, it's interesting, there's a phrase in, the, in this passage where he said that Haman disdained, it means he hated the idea of, he wanted nothing to do with laying hands on Mordecai alone. That strikes me because Mordecai is the only person who's doing anything wrong in Haman's eyes. But Haman will not be satisfied with punishing Mordecai. He isn't satisfied with punishing one person. He wants to punish everyone. What does this teach us about the insecurity of pride? Pride, when your, pri- when you, when your pride is wounded, it will make you lash out and hurt other people in ways that are way out of proportion to anything that's been done to you. You won't be satisfied in balancing the scales. You'll need the scales to go back your way. We have to ask ourselves some questions this morning when we think about the nature of pride. Am I ever satisfied? Am I content in life with what God has given me? Do I know what it feels like to be secure apart from my accomplishments and my achievements and the approval of other people and the acceptance of other people? And what, would that, what, the, what people would pay to know what that feels like. Here's, another, here's a couple other questions you can ask yourself. Do you know how to rest apart from your accomplishments and achievements? And do you know how to rejoice apart from the acceptance and the approval of others? That might seem so foreign, but we're going to get to, just in a little bit, how we put pr- uh, pride to death. Andrew Murray said this. He said, The humble man feels no jealousy or envy. He can praise God when others are preferred and blessed before him. He can bear to hear others praised while he is forgotten because he has received the spirit of Jesus who pleased not himself and who sought not his honor. Pride always seeks its own honor. Pride always looks out for itself. Pride is never satisfied. Pride is never secure. Then we go on and we learn not just the nature of pride but the result of pride. What happens next? Heman goes to the king And he asked the king to basically make a law to put to death the Jewish people. And they do this thing where they cast lots. It's called Purim, which we'll talk about later in this series. It becomes the name of the festival that the Jewish people would celebrate uh, based on this story. And, And they get together in April, and Haman wants to destroy the Jewish people, and they cast lots. And the lots happen to fall on March 7th of the following year, which means it's 11 months later. And so they passed this law, and it says this in verse 13, that letters were sent out uh, everywhere telling uh, the people that they were going to destroy and kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. So they they go out, couriers, uh, messengers, it's decreed all over Susa, all over Persia. And then it says in verse 15 of Esther chapter 3, the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. We see the result of pride, that number one, we are blind to what it does to us, but also we're blind to what it does to others. We're blind to what pride does to us. I just found this amazing. The king and Haman, they just ordered a genocide, a mass murdering of men and women old and young. And so how do they process this incredibly terrible decision, this destructive decision? They says they sat down for a drink. They can't see it in themselves. Pride, we can't see it in ourselves. See, pride 
has the power to blind you to itself because pride is built on protecting yourself and promoting yourself. And as long as you're building buffers around yourself to protect yourself and you're building platforms to promote yourself, you can't actually see yourself. You're blind to it. C.S. Lewis says, pride is the, fault, is the fault which makes a man the most unpopular. There's no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Prideful people are hard to be around, they're hard to work with, they're hard to live with, and they don't see it about themselves. Now, it's good for us to pause and ask the question, is this me? Am I prideful? And spoiler alert, the answer is yes, we all struggle to some degree with pride. But let me ask you some questions that you can use as personal reflection, or just give you some thoughts. Here's some examples that you're prideful. One of the surest signs, by the way, that pride is an issue for you is that you're certain that it isn't. (laughs) If earlier when I said we're going to talk about pride this morning and you thought this isn't for me, it probably very much is for you. Or maybe, here's another sign, as I've been speaking, you've been thinking about someone else in your life who needs this message more than you. That's actually a sign that pride is an issue for you. Um, here's other ways that you know you're, prou- you're, you're proud or prideful. You aren't teachable. You're terribly defensive. And by the way, as I made this list, I, I felt convicted. I felt like I struggled with so many of these. You don't love seeing other people succeed. You actually kind of find joy in seeing other people struggle. You trust your narrative over everyone else's. Your interpretation of the facts is always true. Another sign is this. C.S. Lewis kind of said it, didn't he? You're sensitive to prideful people. The more we have it in ourselves, C.S. Lewis said, the more we dislike it in others. I mean, when I was a kid growing up, there were these insults that we would throw at each other on the school bus, and, and there were these old school things we used to say. I don't know if the kids still say it today, but I remember saying when I was little, I'm rubber, you're glue, whatever you say bounces off of me and sticks to you. And we also used to say to people, hey, it takes one to know one. And actually, that's true with pride. The more that you see pride in other people, the more pride probably is at work in you. Because a truly humble person actually doesn't think they're humble. In fact, a truly humble person doesn't even think about that question, whether or not they're humble or not. Pride has the power to make us blind to what it's doing to us. But also, it makes us blind to what we are doing to others. Because pride makes us view and treat others as wrong. Haman wants to destroy the entire Jewish people just because they're different. Just because of what Mordecai did. It, when, you're pr- when you're proud, it's never just different than. It's always better than. And there's a whole list of those people who are not different than you, but they're worse than you. And so you distance yourself from them. And you don't see people as uh, individual made in God's image with inherent value and worth. Instead, you see them as either an opponent to conquer or a pawn to use. And when we categorize people and we characterize people, we we end up demonizing them and dehumanizing them. And pride does this. This is what pride does to other people. Prideful people are so hard to live with, and they hurt the people around them. Now ask yourself a couple questions. What behaviors, what attitudes am I most defensive about? What worldview do I have? What opinion do I have that no one can talk to me about? I'm very defensive about. I'm very sensitive about. When's the last time I submitted myself to somebody else to be taught, to learn? And how do other people respond to me? Do they want to work with me? Do they, am I approachable? Pride has this way of blinding us to ourselves and blinding us to the way in which we're hurting other people. And God, give us grace and help. Even right now, I just want to pray. Help us to see the pride in our own hearts and the foolishness of our pride and the danger of our pride and help us to be humbled by your grace. 
So we see the nature of pride, the result of pride, and then lastly, the death of pride. We move into Esther chapter 4, and the news has spread throughout Susa, the province. The Jewish people know that in 11 months, the Persians are going to have basically open season to kill them and destroy them. And Mordecai goes into public mourning. And Esther hears that Mordecai is in a position and, and he's dressed himself and he's carrying himself in a way of mourning. And she learns about it and then she learns why he's in mourning. And then Mordecai appeals to Esther, you're the queen, maybe you can do something about this. Maybe you can approach the king. And I want to read to you Esther chapter 4 verses 10 to 17. It says that Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And these verses are so powerful. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young woman will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. There's two things. If pride is going to be put to death, there's two things you have to believe, two things you have to know, two things you have to tell yourself. You have to first tell yourself, I'm not, I I didn't write my own story. You know, Mordecai says, who knows? He doesn't even know, but he's just putting it out there. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Esther, maybe this is why. And the honest answer uh, from, from Esther's perspective would have been, I don't know. Maybe this is, but, but I don't know because I'm not in control. I'm not in charge. I don't write my own story. See, every single one of us wants to be the author and the hero of our own story, but we are neither. And realizing that begins to put pride to death, that there's someone else who is writing our story and that there's someone else who is the hero of our story. Pride allows us to see God as the author of our story. I'm sorry, pride prevents us from seeing God as the author of our story or as the hero of our story, and it makes us both. John Rushkin, the English art critic in the Victorian era, he said this. He said, I believe that the first test of a truly great man is his humility. I do not mean by humility doubt of his own power or hesitation in speaking in his opinion. But really great men have a feeling that the greatness is not Listen, that the greatness is not in them, but through them. That they could not do or be anything else than God made them. God's writing our story. And our part in the story is not about the greatness in us. It's about God's greatness at work through us. This season of life that we're in right now as a, as a church, as a country, it's not all about you. God's writing a story, and we get to be a part of it. But not only do we not write our own story, we don't live for our own glory. Esther says in these famous phrases, If I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. Now, you can't say that if your life is all about you. You can't have that attitude if you're living for your own glory. C.S. Lewis's most famous quote on humility and pride is that humility 
isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And one sign of humility is a willingness to promote others at a cost to yourself and to live for someone else's glory. I'm not writing this story. I'm not living for my glory. So what story are we a part of? And whose glory are we living for? Let me close with this thought. Esther in this story says, who knows? If I perish, I perish. But she didn't know what would happen. And as we continue studying this text, we'll realize that that didn't happen to her. But Jesus Christ, many years later, didn't say, who knows? He said, I know. It's not if I perish, I perish. Jesus said, I will perish. John 8, 50, he said, I seek not my own glory, but the glory of the Father. I want to finish by reading to you this passage from Philippians 2 about the humility of Jesus Christ. And this truth will put to death the pride in our hearts. Paul writes these words, starting in verse 3. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And have this mind among yourself, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but Jesus emptied himself. He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, I'm so thankful this morning for the humility of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ uh, found his greatest joy in living for the glory of his Father and in taking on human flesh and being a suffering servant in our place so that we could put to death the pride in our own lives by his grace and by his spirit. This morning we're going to respond by singing and receiving communion together.